Dinell, heard great things. Uh, members, parents, uh, those who are here, just be praying that the Spirit would apply what these young people heard this weekend to their hearts, that they would grow and mature in the faith as a result. Uh, man, thank you for letting me be a part of it, even just Friday night. Again, for all those who served, opened their homes. Andy, I heard you guys had the house, man. I, I heard, like, I was jealous. Kids got to milk cows, man? Like, what? That's amazing. And I heard the girls took down, like, a 200-pound boar with their bare hands. Like, you trained them. That's amazing, man. Praise God. Well, praise God for the weekend, for his word, and it's good to see all the blue shirts. Um, and this is an important passage. It's all God's word. It's all important. I've heard pastors say, and I've said this, that it's important that before uh, a pastor brings God's word before God's people, that it first does its work in that brother's heart. And man, I have lived in this passage, and I'm sure many of you have. Philippians 4, 4-7, title, very simply, The Peace of God. The big idea, those who know Christ know peace. If you know Christ, then you know peace. Amen? If you don't know Christ, you don't know peace. Um, I don't know how many of you know this story. I'm, I know my parents do, but two years ago when we were living in Washington, Haley was about seven months pregnant with Samantha Jane, and she got really sick, um, had high fever, congested. We took her in, and the doctor said, hey, I'm concerned about her breathing. It's very labored right now. She's not breathing well, my wife. So they sent her straight to the ER, and this was right when COVID had started, and so we didn't really know what was going on. I don't, to this day, I don't know if that's what it was, um, but what I did know was we had lost five children. You know, we'd had multiple miscarriages, uh, our daughter, Abigail Jean, stillborn, and I'm thinking, man, my wife's seven months pregnant. What's going on? Like, what, what's happening? They wouldn't let me in the hospital. I have Clark and Luke in the car, so I had to, like, <laughs> wait in the parking lot and I mean, I was, I was struggling, guys, I'll be honest. Um, but very quickly, rather than giving in to anxiety and worry, I just began to recite scripture to my boys. And I would recite a passage, and then I would pray about it. And then I would recite a passage, and then I would pray about it. And do you know what happened? In that moment, when I had no idea what was happening to my wife and, and potentially our baby, God gave me peace. He did. His peace overwhelmed me. And my boys saw that. They saw their dad, by God's grace, going to the word and then prayerfully applying it. And the result being God's peace rained down in our vehicle that evening. And to this day, Haley's fine. You know, uh, She's home with a sick kid right now, unfortunately. Luke's been really sick this weekend. But Samantha Jane's here. She's 18 months. So praise God for that. The reason I share that story is in the moment when it would have been so easy for me to give in to anxiety and worry. Instead, by God's grace, I went to the Lord, I called out to him, I opened up his word, and God gave peace. Peace. Let me do a little review. It's been a while, you know, since uh, I've gone all the way back to the beginning of Philippians, and so I'm not going to rehash everything, but I want to remind us of the situation. What were these believers going through? when Paul wrote this letter. What was the, the situation surrounding the Philippian church when Paul wrote these words? Remember, these were difficult times for the church. Paul was in chains. 
He was in prison because of his allegiance to Christ. And there were real threats both inside and outside of the church in Philippi. Inside, as we saw last week, there was a threat of real division, even false teaching. And outside of the church, there was a threat of opposition and persecution. Life was not easy for the church. Far from it. So Paul, early on in our letter, prepares them for suffering. And we see that in Philippians 1, 29 and 30. Paul writes, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. I mean, we stop there. Amen. Yes. But, uh uh-oh, also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict, the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The church lives in a hostile world, a world tainted by sin, a world ruined by sin, a world where believers and unbelievers alike suffer. That's reality. It's true. So what do we do? How should the church respond? One quick side note here before we go on. When Paul speaks of suffering for the sake of Christ, as something granted to God's people by God, it helps us to see suffering in a new light. Suffering, and this may sound strange, counterintuitive, I get it, suffering can be seen as a gift from God due to its sanctifying value. The Lord brings suffering into our lives to make us depend on Him more and to make us more like His Son. Amen? Again, the greatest example of that is what? The cross, where the Lord used suffering for his glory and the good of others. Richard Melick writes, It is one thing to accept suffering and resign oneself to it. It is another to realize the privileges that come through it. So let's go back to our passage. I want to quickly summarize what's going on in Philippians 4, 4 to 7. I mean, the structure here is brilliant. Everybody say 4, 2, one. What happened to three? Don't worry about three. There's no three in this passage. We're going to look at four things, then two things, and then one thing. And that is the structure, and you will always remember that. When you think of Philippians 4, 4 to 7, 4, 2, and, and 1. Good. So in our passage, Paul is calling for four actions, four imperative. What's an imperative? An imperative is a command. Do this, do this, do this, do this. So we have Four commands or four responses from God's people. And remember, I talked about this last week. Paul is continuing with the fruit of sanctification. So Philippians 4, 2 to 9, what we're going to see in this large section that I'm taking three weeks to cover is the fruit of what? Sanctification, right? We're seeing the evidence of sanctification. So what are the four actions being called for today? Number one, rejoice in the Lord. Number two, I'm going to come back to all these, so just don't, you have to write this down now. Number one, rejoice in the Lord. Number two, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Number three, don't be anxious about anything. Number four, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And these four commands, these four actions are grounded in two massive truths. So again, four, then we go to 
two. Okay, so these two truths that we find next in our text are everything, right? These two truths are at the heart of the Christian gospel. There is no church without these two truths. So the four actions being called for by Paul are our response to these two great truths. What are they? Are you ready? Drum roll. Okay, here they are. Two truths. So again, four actions. Now two truths. Here they are. Jesus is Lord. Everybody say amen. He's Lord. Number two, the Lord is at hand, meaning Jesus who is Lord, number two, is going to come back. Okay? He's Lord. He's sovereign. I'll unpack what that means. Number two, he's at hand, meaning he's coming back. His return is at hand. Does that give peace? Oh, okay. So again, we can... He's Lord. He's sovereign. He's in control. Not only that, he's coming back. As Aaron prayed, I'm expecting it this morning. Who knows? May it be. Lastly, so again, four, two, one. Lastly, Paul leaves us with a great promise, a wonderful promise, a beautiful uh, consequence, a result of our response to these two great truths. Here's the last thing. Here's the promise. Four actions. Two truths, one promise, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Four actions, two truths, one promise. Let's start with the four actions being called for. Four actions. Number one, rejoice in the Lord. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. There it is. That's from verse four, Philippians four. And in case you missed it, okay, so it's like, hey, rejoice always. And in case you missed it, Paul repeats himself. Again, I say, rejoice. Joy or rejoicing is a major theme in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians 1.18, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. Philippians 3.1, finally, my brothers, what? Rejoice in the Lord. Peter O'Brien writes, clearly, continuous rejoicing in the Lord is of great significance to Paul. He says it a bunch, right? And when Paul repeats something, whenever the biblical writer repeats something, it's for emphasis. Pay attention. Peter goes on to say, it is a Christian's distinguishing mark and a characteristic of the kingdom of God. Along with other graces, it is a fruit of the Spirit that will be evident in times of suffering and trial. The word rejoice, piro, piro, that's a tough one to say. This is what it means, the Greek word, to be glad, okay, to be in a state of well-being. It means that you can say, regardless of your circumstances, it is well with my soul. That is joy. The call to rejoice is the call to be full of joy. What is happiness? Happiness is fleeting. Happiness comes and goes. Happiness is based on our circumstances, not so joy. Joy is ongoing despite one's circumstances. Joy is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and our union with Christ through faith. Joy is the fruit of a life that is fully satisfied in Christ, an unshakable peace and fulfillment enjoyed by those who have a relationship with God and are thus filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? 
the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of one's health cannot remove this joy. It was this joy that enabled Paul to say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whether in chains for the gospel, threatened by death, or doing ministry alongside brothers in Christ, Paul had what? He had joy. And he called the church to have this same joy. And to have it how often? Say it with me. Always. Again, joy for the believer is not based upon one's circumstances, but on the gospel and our new spiritual position because of the gospel. And this is supported by the phrase, rejoice, what's, what follows? Rejoice in the Lord. Oh, man, that's massive. Let me fix this really fast. Reet, reet, reet. Okay, we're good. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Two things here. First, Jesus the Lord is the object of our rejoicing. We rejoice in who he is and what he's done. Amen? We rejoice in who he is. Who is he? He's our Savior. He's our King. He's our Lord. We rejoice in what he's done. He's lived. He's died. He's been raised to save us. Church, Paul doesn't call us to rejoice in our health, in our wealth, in our circumstances, but rather to rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Second, and related to the first, We rejoice because we are in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. If you're in Christ by faith, if you've been united to Jesus, you have reason to do what? To rejoice. We rejoice because we are in the Lord. This is our grounds for rejoicing. What does it mean to be in Christ? For help here, I often point believers to John 15, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the the branches. Okay, so we are Christians connected to him by faith. And because we are in Christ, we are new creation. Because we are in Christ, we are part of God's family. We've been adopted. Because we're in Christ, we have a new life and we have new hope. Again, your financial situation may change. Your health may change. But if you're in Christ, your new position before God will never change. And because of that, you have reason to what? To rejoice. We can always rejoice because we are in the Lord. In sum, we can always rejoice as Christians. The world doesn't have this. We do in Christ. As Christians, we can always rejoice because of Christ, his saving work, and our union with him. Now, when you hear the word rejoice, what do you think? What's your first thought? You probably think of someone doing this. Woo! You think of something outward, external, okay? To rejoice, first, that that woo was for our students. I know they're tired. To rejoice refers to an attitude or mindset, and not simply to a particular action, such as shouting or clapping. However, those outward actions flow out of our joy. If you're taking notes, write this down. I'm watching you. Joy is the believer's new disposition because of his or her position in Christ. Joy is the believer's new disposition because of his or her new position in Christ. If you're in Christ, what are you? You're a new creation. If you're in Christ, what are you declared now? You're declared righteous. Are you guilty before God? No, you're innocent. 
Are you an object of his wrath? No, you're a child of God. And you have every reason to do what for the rest of your life into eternity? To what? To rejoice. Again, joy is the believer's new disposition because of his or her new position in Christ. Now, the word always helps us to see that this rejoicing is not based on circumstances. What is ever changing in our world? Circumstances, right? You go from single to being married to being just two of you in the house to then having children, and then the children leave, right? Things are always changing. What doesn't change for believers? Our hope, our reason for joy, because we have a new position in Christ, amen? So we can rejoice how often? Always, always. Listen, this is what you have to get. Our rejoicing is to be done independently of our circumstances. You know, who models this for us so well? Paul. Philippians 4, 10 to 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, I'm sorry, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, Paul says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is joy right there. That's joy. That's joy. He rejoices in the Lord, verse 10. His joy is constant and not based on circumstances. That's verse 11. And it's through the Lord, as seen in verse 13. So Paul rejoices in the Lord and who he is and what he's done always, and it's to be done through the Lord by his strength. Church, our joy is evidence that we belong to Christ. If you say, I belong to Christ, what should be seen in your life? What new disposition? Joy. All right, what's that, that was my longest point. What is the next action being called for, the next command? Number two, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's verse five. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You're like, those points sound awfully familiar. My points are directly from the text this week, okay? Verse five. Now, again, my points are always based on the text by God's grace, but I just thought, man, Paul says it so well. Let's just keep to his words. <laughs> the word reasonableness, a paikis, a pie kiss, kind of what it sounds like. I love getting kissed by pie. Man, pumpkin pie, apple pie, take a big old bite. So that's how, I did things like that in Greek, like when I took Greek, just to memorize things. So a pie kiss. It's often translated as gentleness. It, re, it can refer to kindness. So let your gentleness, let your kindness be known to everyone. Okay, so what is joy? It's a fruit of the, what is kindness? Are you seeing a pattern here? How can we live this way? By the, by the Spirit. The things Paul is calling the church to do, the church can do because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We can rejoice, we can have joy, and we can be gentle and kind because we have the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit represents the character of who? Who embodies the fruit perfectly? Jesus, right? For that is what the Spirit of God is at work producing in the people of God. So to be gentle is to be Christ-like. To be joyful is to be Christ-like. How was Christ gentle, and when did he demonstrate gentleness? 
Jesus, too, was gentle in the face of opposition because he trusted the Father's will. And he practiced his trust through what? Prayer. I love Matthew 12, 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. In the face of opposition and uncertainty, the church is to maintain a spirit of gentleness. We need verse 5 today. Amen? We need verse 5 today. What was Paul getting at here? Recall the situation. When the world opposes us and persecutes us, we are to refrain from retaliation and instead be gentle and kind. But it's not just difficult people that require gentleness, but difficult situations and circumstances. How easy, how easy it is for us to lose our cool and to lash out at loved ones when money is tight, when our jobs are threatened, when our health is in jeopardy, or when we're worried. Paul is saying, in these situations, let your gentleness, your kindness be known. Let it be on display. To who? Who should see our kindness, our gentleness? Paul says, let your kindness, your gentleness, be known to who? Everyone. To believers and non-believers. To friends, family, neighbors, classmates, and co-workers. In the midst of our current situation, right now in our world, when people are reacting every which way, may the church consistently convey the gentleness and kindness of Jesus Christ to everyone. Church, not only is our joy evidence that we belong to Christ, church, our gentleness is evidence that we belong to Christ. It's true. So first, we are to rejoice in the Lord. Second, we are to let our gentleness be known to everyone. And third, Paul says, here's the third action, don't be what? Don't be anxious about what? Anything. Verse 6. Oh, there it is again. Do not be anxious about anything. <clears throat> this is so are you are you listening? Are you listening? Paul is casting a wide net here in our passage. He's already said, rejoice always. Let your reasonableness be known to who? Everyone. And now, do not be anxious about anything. Okay, so everybody say always, everyone, anything. Are you catching that? Paul is saying the behavior I'm calling for is to be constant and far-reaching. Okay? Always, everyone, anything. The verb to be anxious, I'm sure you're, who's ever dealt with anxiety? You don't have to raise your hand, but I know many of us have. I have. I've struggled with anxiety. The verb to be anxious is merimnao, merimnao. And it means to be apprehensive, to be unduly concerned. To be apprehensive, to be unduly concerned. Paul's saying, don't give in to that. Don't do that. Now, this verb, merimnao, right, don't be anxious, don't be unduly concerned, don't be apprehensive, it's typically used in a context where persecution is present or in the face of difficulty. Paul is saying, don't respond this way, believers. It seems that the action Paul is calling believers not to do, which is anxiety, is often the greatest threat to doing the things Paul is calling us to do. Anxiety threatens our joy. Anxiety threatens our kindness, our gentleness. Do you see what he's doing here? The great 
enemy to rejoicing, to living Christ-like lives of gentleness and kindness. And as we'll see next, prayer, the great enemy to these three things is anxiety and worry. Because anxiety and worry take the focus off of Christ and put the focus on us in our circumstances. Does that make sense? So what does anxiety do? It takes the focus off of Christ and it puts the focus on us and our circumstances. What are some things that we typically get anxious about? Finances, family, and health. These things, these things, family, finances, and health, typically are the, I mean, there could be other things as well. I get that. But I would say these are the great three, okay? The things that we're often most anxious about, such as finances and health, again, are these bad things? No. But these are the things that we are most prone to make idols out of, right? As Christians, we know that these things will not last and that they will ultimately not satisfy. They are not our primary grounds for joy, for our joy is found in who? Jesus, his finished work, and our new position before God because of the gospel. So rather than worrying, Paul is calling the church to depend on Jesus in prayer. Recall what Jesus said about anxiety and worry in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Instead of worrying, Jesus calls us to do what in the very next verse? To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, one way we do this is by doing what? By praying. We see the Lord's agenda. We seek the Lord's agenda by praying. Recall the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Church, our proper response to anxiety is evidence that we belong to Christ. Our joy is evidence we belong to Christ. Our reasonableness, our gentleness and kindness is evidence we belong to Christ. And thirdly, what? How we respond to anxiety is evidence of who we belong to, Jesus Christ. Verse six, here's the last thing, the last action being called for. It's the remedy to worry. And everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The fourth action is so important. Prayer is how we exercise our dependence on the Lord. If you're not regularly praying, then you're not regularly depending on the Lord. Is true? If you're not regularly praying, what are you saying? If you're not praying, what are you proclaiming? God, I don't need you. I got this. Prayer is our key to communion with God. So how's your prayer life today, friends? How's your prayer life going? When the cares and the concerns of the world begin to crowd your mind, do you take advantage of the fact that in Christ you have the Father's ear? Prayer is how we make war on our anxiety. Who wants to make war on anxiety? Worry. What should you be doing? What does God call us to do? To pray. Again, Paul is being comprehensive once again. Different situations call for different kinds of prayer. 
supplication, requests, thanksgiving. And thus point, the point here is that whatever the situation we should pray, whatever the situation we should pray, and whenever we pray, we must pray with thanksgiving. As one commentator writes, the attitude of gratitude accompanies all true approaches to the Father. What does this look like, namely to pray with thanksgiving? I, I got three things I want you to write down here. Number one, we thank God that we can pray because of Jesus. So again, Paul is saying all our prayers should be accompanied by what? Thanksgiving. So how do we pray with thanksgiving? Number one, we thank God that we can pray because of Jesus. Could we pray without Jesus? We could not pray without Jesus. To pray in the name of Jesus as we're commanded to in Scripture is to recognize the access that we are now given to God through the Son. If you have the Son, then you have the Father's ear. Amen? If you have the Son, then you have the Father's ear. The gospel grounds our prayers. So when you pray, be thankful because the only reason you can pray is because of your faith in the Son of God who lived, died, and rose again. Amen? That's why we can pray. And that's why we should always pray with thanksgiving. When you pray in Jesus' name, you are acknowledging the access you have to God through the Son. Second, we thank God that he helps us pray. Now, come on! Are you kidding me? Like, not only can we pray because of the Son, but the Son also helps us pray? What? What do we call that? That's double grace. That's grace all up in your face. Are you kidding me? Friends, are you catching this? Not only does the Son give us access, but the Son and the Holy Spirit help us when we pray by interceding for us. Oh my goodness. I'm about to just tape this to my head. I'm so sorry. Is this bothering you guys? Is it like an itch behind his ear? Maybe I do. Maybe this is a ploy. It's not. It's my little ears. Third, we thank God that his will shall be done in prayer. In fact, we're called to pray this way. Your will be done. Listen to this. All of the four actions call us to move our attention to Christ. We rejoice by looking to Christ and remembering our union with Christ, who we are in Christ. We are gentle and kind by looking to the example of Christ and through our union with Christ. We overcome anxiety. How? By keeping our eyes on Christ and the blessing of salvation he's provided. And when we pray, we take advantage of our access to God through who? Christ. We are looking to his power and presence. We are calling out to him for help. The result, what's the result of this? The peace of God. Those who pray have peace. Those who direct their attention onto the Lord have peace. This is the opposite of anxiety. And more on this later, but who needs peace today? Be honest, who needs peace today? I need peace today. I need peace every day. Church, our prayerful dependence on God as seen in all situations is evidence that we belong to Christ. No matter the situation as Christians, what should we do? We should pray because prayer demonstrates that we're depending not on us, but on who? Jesus. So remember, two things allow for the four actions being called for by Paul. Two things already highlighted by Paul both enable and move the believer to rejoice, live Christ-like lives of gentleness and kindness, protect the believer against anxiety, 
and move the believer to pray. It's knowing, here it is, here are the two truths, knowing that Jesus is on the throne and that he's coming back. Two truths. Number one, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Verse four, rejoice in the, the Lord. Why does Paul use that title for Jesus? What's significant about the title Lord applied to Jesus? The word Lord, the word Lord was typically used of who? Who was Lord in the first century? Caesar. Caesar. He was the emperor supreme. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. No, 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 no way, Jose. Jesus is Lord. He is king. He is on the throne. He is sovereign. He is in control. There is no greater peace-instilling message than this. Jesus is Lord. What do we know, church? Jesus is Lord. He is in control. Colossians 1.17, we sang it this morning. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is sustaining everything in the cosmos by his powerful word. After he has provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, the throne. Jesus is on the throne. What does that image declare? He is Lord. He is sovereign. He is in control. Does that give you peace today? Can you rejoice knowing Jesus is on the throne? Say it with me. Yes. Can you be gentle and kind because Jesus is on the throne? Do you have reason not to be anxious because Jesus is on the throne? And can you pray because Jesus is on the throne? Yeah. The, the fact that Jesus ascended and is at the right hand of the Father means that he has blazed a trail back to glory for his people. As Christians, and I hate when Christians say this. I don't hate Christians who say this. I didn't say that. I hate when Christians say this. When they use the expression, the world is out of control. I would say that's borderline blasphemous. Because who holds the, wor the world together? Who is sustaining all things by the power of his word? Jesus is. The world is not out of control. Because the one who holds the world together is on the, on the throne. We can rest in the sovereignty of the king. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Again, we need to be reminded of this today and every day. What's the next truth that Paul highlights for us? Here's the second truth. Number one, Jesus is Lord. Number two, the Lord is at hand. Oh, verse five. Oh, there it is again. The Lord is at hand. This represents both the great Christian hope, the Lord's return, and the, the present blessing of his presence. So there's kind of a double meaning intended here. The Lord is at hand means two things. One, he's coming back, but he's also near. He's near now. He is with us. What does Jesus say at the end of the Great Commission? And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, when Clark, when he was younger, had bad dreams a lot, and he would call out for daddy. He would scream, dad, dad. 
and I would run in there, my bow ready. Who's there? No, but I would go in there, and I would kneel by his bed, and I would just hold him, and I would pray over him, and my presence brought peace. Just the other night, Luke woke up at about 11, 11.30, crying. He was burning up, 102 fever, snotty, and I held him. He was scared. Why do I feel like this, Daddy? <laughs> well, you're sick, buddy. <laughs> but I held him, and I prayed over him. And again, his dad's presence, the father's presence brought what? Peace. Knowing that Daddy was with him. How much more the presence of God, church? Amen? No matter what we're going through, and no matter what comes our way, we can have what? Peace because we have the presence of God. The Lord is with us now, and here's the kicker. He will come again. The primary focus, I would argue in verse 5, is on the Lord's return, which stands as the church's greatest hope. And what does this hope mean for God's people? In Philippians 3, 20 and 21, we read, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When Christ returns, our salvation will be brought to its final glorious goal. We will know Christ fully, will be fully conformed to him. Our sin nature will be eradicated. We'll have resurrection bodies no longer given over to sickness, death, and disease. And what? God will wipe away every tear, no more crying, no more pain, and no more death. Does that sound good? That is our hope as believers. Now, what do these two truths Jesus is Lord, and the Lord is returning. What do those two truths reveal about God? He is sovereign, and he is faithful. Paul is pointing to two great realities, one that is present and one that is future. Presently, Jesus is Lord. He's on the throne. He's in control. And that same Jesus will what? He's going to come again. He'll return. The king will return. Knowing these two things enables God's people to not be overcome by anxiety, but to rejoice, to live Christ-like lives of gentleness and kindness, and to pray. When you know these two truths, you can live this way. Amen? These two truths ground the four actions Paul is calling us to. Now, what's the result? The promise and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's our final point, the promise. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The promise of verse 7 is related to what we know, and what we know is the result of who we know and who knows us. When we pray to God, we are directing our attention to the one who is sovereign and to the one who will return. And this brings what? What does this bring? When you're going through life, when life is hard, when, when your health, I don't know what's going to happen. When your job, I don't know if I'm going to have it tomorrow. What can we bank on? What can we know in the deep recesses of our hearts that will give us peace? Jesus is Lord and he's coming back. Amen? What do we learn about this peace? Three things here. It's the peace of God. What does that mean? It's found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The peace of God is found in Christ. It's a gift from the king for those who belong to the king. Now, the Greek word for peace is irene, irene. 
And it can often refer to relational harmony. Like, again, if you're at peace with your wife, husbands, is that a good thing? Yeah, there's relational harmony. But it can also refer to an inner calm that results from acknowledging that God is king and that he is victorious over his enemies. As Steve Lawson notes, peace is an inner calm that settles the turbulence of troubled hearts. Now, it's appropriate that we bring these two things together, these two ideas. Those who have relational harmony with God through Jesus Christ enjoy an inner calm, a peace of mind that settles their hearts even in the face of trials, opposition, and suffering. Number two, this peace surpasses all understanding. From a human perspective, it doesn't make any sense. I remember Clark's teacher after we lost Abigail. I brought Clark to school the next week. She knew what had happened about our stillborn daughter. She's weeping. You know, I'm still weeping, but I'm able to share with her the reason for my hope. She's like, how are you even alive right now? How are you dealing with this? I said, I have peace because of Christ and who he is and what he's done. I trust him. I trust his promises. I rest in him. That did not make sense to her. She could not wrap her mind around that. How can you have such peace? This peace that we have in Christ surpasses all understanding. From a human perspective, it doesn't make sense. It's so great, and its effects are so great, it is beyond human comprehension. Listen, church, the world should be flabbergasted by the peace we have as followers of Christ. Amen? The world should be like, what? That's cray-cray. How do you have peace right now because of Christ? And then lastly, it's guarding God's people now. It's a peace that's from God. It's a peace that from a human perspective makes no sense because it's so great. And thirdly, it guards God's people. Paul uses a military verb, (laughs) fureo. It means to watch over. God promises to guard our thoughts and emotions with his peace. He steals our hearts and minds with his peace. He calms and comforts us with his peace. And this peace distinguishes us from the world. When I lived in Africa, and I walked around in that village, I was one of the only white people they'd ever seen. There was no other white, I was like the white guy. And I was tall, and I was white, and I sounded different, and I looked strange. And people would follow me because I was different. I'm not attractive, but I attracted them because I was different looking. I sounded different. That should be the church, amen? Especially in times like today. The world is anxious, but the church has peace because of these two great truths. We've looked at Jesus is Lord, he's sovereign, and he's coming back. And then lastly, we rejoice in this peace. This peace, which dispels anxiety, grounds our joy in the Lord. Why do we have joy, church? Because we have what? We have peace. Let me leave you with this. Five ways to pray about this passage. Number one, pray that our joy would be seen by the world. Number two, pray that our peace would be seen by the world. Number three, pray, church, that our first response in the face of difficulty, opposition, would always be to pray, to go to the Lord in prayer. And number four, Pray this for each other. Amen? And number five, praise and thank God for the gospel that brings peace, knowing that because of Christ's work, 
we have access to God now, that he is king, that he's in control, and that that king is going to come back and make all things right. Do you know the gospel? What does the gospel bring? What does Paul say in Romans 5.1? Those who have been justified by faith now have what? Peace with God. Amen? The gospel brings peace, friends. If you know Jesus, then you know what? You know peace. Without Christ, there is no peace. We live in a hostile world. We're born with a hostile heart. Hostile to who? Opposed to who? God. We're born enemies of God. We're born not at peace with God because of sin. We need a Savior. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation. And those things have been provided through Christ. He lived for us. He died for us. And He rose again. And those who trust in Jesus can have what? Peace. Relational harmony with God that results in what? An inner calm. I can know that I know that no matter what happens, God is in control and Christ is coming back. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that truth that if we know your Son, we know peace. Father, I thank you for what your word reveals. I thank you for the actions it calls for. I thank you for the truths that ground those actions. And we thank you for the promises that are found in your word. That those who trust in you, Lord, those who depend on you, those who go to prayer, those who are not given over to worry and anxiety, but look to you and depend on you prayerfully. Those who know, God, that you are king. Those who know, Jesus, that you are Lord. Those who know, Jesus, that you're coming back, that we can have peace even now. I pray that your peace would reign over your church, that your peace would be seen in our day to day, and I pray that the world will be flabbergasted by the peace we enjoy in Christ Jesus. And I pray that that peace would lead to gospel conversations. I pray that we'd go out of this place today proclaiming the peace that is found in Christ Jesus and in him alone. And it's in his name we pray. All God's people said.